This episode of A Brush With is sponsored by Cork Street Galleries. To find out more about the original home of the art world, go to corkstreetgalleries.com. Hello, I'm Ben Luke and welcome to the second episode of this new podcast from the art newspaper where we explore the life and work of artists through their cultural experiences. And I'm delighted to say that this time it's a brush with Jenny Saville. Jenny was born in Cambridge in 1970 and she says she wanted to be an artist even as a child and had a studio in a broom cupboard in the family home. She eventually went to Glasgow School of Art and famously her degree show at Glasgow sold out. Now myth has it that that show sold out to Charles Saatchi but in fact that's not quite right. Charles Saatchi did take a very early interest in her work but he actually ended up acquiring some of those works from people who bought it from the degree show and then commissioned a whole new body of work so he became a great supporter of her early career and in fact that manifested itself most vividly in an exhibition called Young British Artists 3 where Jenny really was unveiled to a broader public and since that exhibition in 1994 she's been very strongly associated with the Young British Artists that group of artists that were championed by Charles Saatchi in the early 90s but actually she's a very distinctive artist in many ways many of those artists refer back to Marcel Duchamp and the conceptual tradition of the 20th century and while Jenny definitely does refer to 20th century artists for instance the abstract expressionists like de Kooning she also reaches much further back into history and refers very often to artists like Titian and Velasquez and other old masters she works at a scale which absolutely mirrors the scale that those artists worked at. So, for instance, in that degree show, there was a seven-foot-high painting called Propped, which has since gone on to become the most expensive work of art by a living woman artist sold at auction. And that was a statement of intent right from the start. So a number of works in her early career were huge, incredibly vast, on the scale of the great old master paintings. And at the heart of her work is a commitment to figuration, to painting human bodies. But at the same time, she paints with the vigour of abstract artists. It was Willem de Kooning, one of her great heroes, who said that oil paint was invented to depict flesh. And I don't think any artist in recent years has explored that idea more vividly than Jenny Saville. And in recent years, she's also expanded the abstract qualities of her work, opened up the language that she uses, included more drawing, included more space, and the works now are full of a new kind of movement, as well as that same strident commitment to figuration. And alongside this ever-expanding lexicon of her visual language, you have a much broader and richer commitment to literature. So in recent years, she's gone much further in depth to ancient poetry, for instance. So the textual references have, alongside the visual references, become much denser and more complicated. And I think the paintings have become all the more interesting as a result. But before Jenny and I dived into her cultural influences, I wanted to start right from the beginning, and I began by asking her about her uncle, who was enormous inspiration. It struck me that Paul Saville was not just inspirational in bringing her to the old masters and making her look at their work, but also in inspiring her ambition to match them. From probably about eight or nine, he guided me in a very old-fashioned way about being an artist. So I was sort of under his tutelage, if you like, and school holidays, I would go there, he'd set tasks for me to do. I mean, 
silly things like I had to draw a hedge every day for a year to observe nature and he suggested that it would last me a lifetime and it really has to to actually see that each little tiny thing you look at changes and alters and it changes you at the same time so that that was a incredible journey actually at such a young age and just it wasn't it wasn't just the art history it was the fact that we would go and look at paintings and we would talk about things like the models in the paintings we'd spot different models and he bought being an artist close to me that it was a possibility of a way to live so Often, I think, when people look at very old paintings, they feel a sense of distance between them and the paintings because they're so old. And he helped me bridge that space. And that was critical. So he sort of essentially he made those people in those images real people as opposed to just sort of distant historic types. Yeah. Yeah, it was. It wasn't. You know, I'd go to uh, the bar where Rembrandt drank. You know, we'd stand at the bridge where he did the drawing and we'd look at the drawing and think, oh, my God, that must have been tough, that bit there. And it it was actually, you know, we'd go to Rembrandt's house, we'd go and find Titian's house. We'd go to a a pigment shop that I would imagine was the same pigment shop near the Ferrari in Venice, which probably wasn't. But, you know, my imagination was such that um, it was like that. And then uh, we would go every morning to Rialto Fish Market at six o'clock in the morning and draw the guys moving the the vegetables or the fish. And that was quite a magical experience to, you know, to have him with me talk about the musk, you know, the movement of the muscles and then combine that with a very art historical knowledge in the daytime when there were more um, students around. I was looking at the Rape of Europa by Titian in that extraordinary National Gallery show and there's a monkfish right at the bottom of that picture and it made me think, you know, Titian was doing that. Titian was going to the to the Rialto fish market and getting specimens and was, you know, enlivened by that experience and drawing directly from it. Yeah, I mean, it's very much part of everyday life in the city. You know, I mean, my uncle was encouraging me to drink red wine and Coca-Cola at 9am <laughs> because <laughs> that's what the fish guys did. I mean, it was pretty revolting. I'd never recommend it. But um, but it was it was that all-encompassing life that he gave me access to that you know you can do this as a life it's possible for you and and that those artists are related to you that's what he made me feel I, I wanted to jump forward quite a long way from here but it seems to me that you have conceptualized a kind of massive shift in your career which I thought was really interesting because I often artists aren't historians of their own work but you you talked about the experience of having children as being this period of a, almost like a BC AD moment in your work that somehow having children unleashed a kind of new kind of work in in, in, in your in your practice? Uh, I think as well um, I kind of let it all in rather than at the time you know there was a, there were quite a few voices around me that were saying you know can you still work at that level you know that was sort of doubting my creative capacity and my career in general you know the time um, and I, I had feelings that were quite the opposite of that at the time. So I just went with my instinct and thought, this is phenomenal, what I'm feeling, what I'm seeing, the interaction with my children. And then when they started to draw, watching them drawing. And, you know, Cy Twombly, I think he must have watched his son a lot when he, you know, and that, that encouraged him to do those sort of scribbles and the, the, the lumps of pigment. I think that must have had an influence on him too. So you know, it's I have a quite an open attitude to art. I don't I don't only look at paintings to make my paintings. I mean, a a stain on the floor or the skid marks of a tire on a runway can be as potent to me as a as an impulse to make art as looking at a great old master painting. So, 
when I had children, the shock of that uh, was just so exciting. You know, it's, it's exciting to see limbs move around and uh, the distribution of fat on a child's body is different from an adult. You know, and then reading about Leonardo saw the same thing. When you look at the notebooks, he sort of spotted the same idea. So, and that opened all that art back to me. I started looking a lot more at his drawings and Michelangelo's drawings and Raphael's drawings. I think it, it, there were lots of things. You know, I'd been in Sicily for many years and, um, you know, had, had been looking at goddesses and ancient rites. Uh, I got very interested in the goddess Isis, uh, Egyptian art. And uh, the idea of reproduction and the power of fertility, which being a, you know, a feminist from the, the 90s, biological determinism was like a dirty idea. Yet I was having children and the, the idea of being female and this, um, uh, the rights of fertility suddenly became at the forefront of my mind. So I had to work with that. And it was very exciting to then be able to engage with those you know, the utterances of Isis, for example, suddenly had another power for me. And, um, you know, I was reading Goethe and um, he talks about this thing called the realm of the mothers. And that occupied my thinking for a good five years, I would say, about trying to put that into pictorial form, this realm of the mothers, this this way of reproducing forms, which was like having children and watching them grow and um, interact with each other. And indeed, you made that extraordinary drawing. Um, well, is it a drawing? Is it a painting? It's a vast, a vast drawing-based work, um, which is which is called in the realm of the mothers, of course. Yeah, I've made several in the realm of the mothers. I mean, there's a painting called The Mothers, which people often think is just to do with motherhood, and it actually has a, um, a, you know, a relationship with ancient art. You know, I, I mean, I even saw the umbilical cord as this sort of rope to the ancient world. You know, it, all of those things became very visceral for me. And, um, you know, giving birth is like being in a Francis Bacon painting. So so I, I, I didn't want to refuse those feelings. I mean, what, what, you know, I'm, I'm a scavenger of things. <laughs> like I literally will, t- you know, want to take everything I can to make the best art I can. So I, w- I didn't want to refuse any of that. And I, f- I felt like I had this very insider view of something very human, incredibly human. All right, let's move on to the questions that we ask all our guests. Who was the first artist whose work you loved? I can't figure which painter in particular and I would say that I probably fell in love with studios before I fell in love with a particular work of art so I fell in love with I would say Francis Bacon's probably my first big love of a more modern painter and it was the studios of Giacometti and Bacon where I felt an immediate sense of belonging I felt like okay this is this is like my bedroom in a in in a more adult sense um but, I, I, you know, I felt this is the way I want to live my life. I felt an, a kinship with those artists and uh, probably Picasso too. So, and, and Paris and Cezanne. You know, it, it, I had my uncle sort of feeding me um, old master paintings and Rembrandt. He particularly liked Rembrandt. Um, and then, and Titian, obviously, Tintoretto in Venice. And then I, I sort of developed a, a kind of more cutting edge um, interest and then I suppose de Kooning started. I got kind of hooked on de Kooning after a while. 
Egon Schiele, I liked him. But, you know, I also like like, the photographs of him, the the scene in Vienna. I like the whole thing of that. It just just gave me a, a route of a way I wanted to live my life. It's interesting that, isn't it? I mean, you mentioned going to Paris there, and I, I like so many. I think people went to Paris on my my A level art trip, and I went again in on my foundation course. And and the the experience of going to an art centre, sort of apart from the kind of city which you were already living in or whatever, is I found it so liberating. And I just it was it was just this sort of deluge of culture and I wonder you'd had that background with your uncle but it seems to me also that that was a sort of liberation for you seeing Paris as well yeah I mean I, I did I did a few trips so I, I went interrailing you know that thing where you, you for a month you go interrailing and you know I went to Cezanne's studio that was one of the first looking back I, you know I obviously wanted to go there and I went I wanted to go and see I was kind of devastated that the mountain didn't look the same because it had buildings on it by the time I got there. But, you know, being in his studio, I, I've always liked to visit artists' studios. I find them sort of magical places and they connect you with the place. And, yeah, I don't know. It's, 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 I think when you travel somewhere, like when I go to New York, I see a lot more work in New York because I spend every day out of the studio. When I'm in the UK, I'm less likely, in a way, to go to museums because I'm in the studio every day. So if I'm travelling, I've got the whole day free to go and see things. And I, I live at MoMA and the Met and in Chelsea. And, and so I see a lot when I travel, um, which I probably don't see as much in London, ironically. I suspect the answer to this will be, will be multiple artists. But which historical artist do you turn to the most? Well, you're right. I mean, I've got I've got a sort of team, I would say, <laughs> that I feel that I'm in constant dialogue with that are around me. And um, so I can list them off. So I've got uh, Velasquez, Titian, Rembrandt. Then I've got uh, Picasso, late Degas Pastels, de Kooning. All, all parts of de Kooning's life I like. I, I found I've moved with him as an artist um Michelangelo and Leonardo drawings and obviously Michelangelo's sculptures Twombly Monet Soutine and Matisse that's my uh, and I suppose um Piero della Francesco for the silence I would say like I always admire the silence so that's a group I work around Bacon obviously as well I'd say Bacon and do you I mean at the moment I know you're you're working on this extraordinary project for Florence where you are going to show your work in, in multiple sites yeah and therefore is is Michelangelo a particular obsession at the moment or do you in a way even though you're doing that are the others still entering into your into your world in the same way well I just made a piece called virtual for the Gagosian spotlight and so I worked with um in particular the last portrait um of Picasso you know the self-portrait that's in colored pencils Mm. I worked with um Bacon and Rembrandt. So they were the sort of three artists circulating around when I was making that painting and de Kooning. So, and I mean, that's, that's definitely a core that I've, I, I feel like I'm in a sort of pinball machine with those artists. And I go between them, you know, I, I, I steal a bit from de Kooning. I look at the, the sumptuousness of the paint. I mean, he, he's, he's like a great poet in painting. And I like Twombly for those reasons. I mean, by and large, I would say I like older art that's figurative and uh, more modern art that's abstract if it, if it's sort of post Picasso and Picasso is somebody I just come back to because the, as older I've got the more inventive I feel I've become or the more I value inventiveness or imagination and the the ability to to um take a risk 
And so he's become a much more valuable artist to me in terms of a companion, if you if you know what I mean. You mentioned umbilical cords a while ago, and I just wondered about, it's interesting to me hearing those different groups of artists, and you can draw an umbilical cord from one to the other in many of those cases, but I think also quite interestingly, so for instance, you can follow Titian through to Velasquez to Rembrandt, etc. But obviously there's a quite distinct group in there, which is Leonardo and Michelangelo to a certain extent. Yeah. And it seems to me that speaks to a lot of the values that you express in your own work, in your paintings, in sense that there is a battle in a way between Disegno and Colore in your work, isn't there? Yeah, very much. I mean, I, I work off contradictions. I think that's the I, I think that's the strength paintings really has. So, um, you know, I work off, you know, like stains plus impasto or uh, structure, uh, formalist structure with very abstract type paint. Um, you know, good draw. I, I'm very much uh, I mean, Michelangelo is a core artist for me because of the structure, his ability to make structure. And I've never stopped looking at his sculptures, really. I mean, I'm sort of obsessed with that um, Florence Pieta right now so, because I'm going to show with the Pieta, hopefully. Wow. So, and um, yeah, I mean, it's. I try not to think about that too much <laughs> because you get intimidated. But So I've got a book, a photographic book of close-ups of that sculpture and that's been beautiful to work with. So, but it's his, he goes somewhere further than most artists. And I'm interested in how you, how you turn that key a little bit further. So he's been, I'm reading his letters at the moment and um, it's just, you know, I've, I've always looked at his drawings, but when you work, I really like where I'm connected to a particular artist because it forces my hand to look more than I would have looked before. So I did a, 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 a self-portrait based on the Rembrandt um, that's at Kenwood House with the two circles. And I thought I knew that painting. I've looked at it for years. You know, I often refer to it. If I want to paint a nose, I'm not sure. I look at that painting and... But doing that, you know, I literally had every reproduction I could find. I ate my lunch looking at that. I had close-ups around the painting. And he forced my hand to make much better tones than I'd ever made before. In terms of pushing the tone, you look and you look and you think something has a particular tone. And then Rembrandt suddenly puts more light into the tone and it creates air around the figure that's mysterious. And only from really looking at him... Did I then look at my own work and try and push in that way? So I, I find it incredibly useful to work with a kind of companion artist with a particular artwork. It, it helps my personal development. What about living artists? Is, is, is that slightly different? I mean, which living artist do you most admire? I can't really have Twombly, I suppose, because he's died. But if I, had a, if I had a living artist, you know, that I've known or had a relationship, it would definitely be Twombly. He really guided me. Um, gave me huge amounts of confidence. I've, I've had a kinship with him. You know, working in Palermo was what he thought was a great idea when lots of other people didn't. Um, and just seeing the epic nature of his work and his relationship with history. You know, he'd recommend good writers. Um, I would say Richard Serra has been very supportive as an artist. I find the serious nature of his work you know, powerful and um, I like this sort of solemn feeling when you walk around his sculptures, his drawings. I, I love his drawings. Uh, Richter, I would say, um, was a very, you know, the, the the life of Richter as an artist has been very impressive. The um, the way that he came up with that abstract shift. And, you know, I used to read that book quite a bit, The Daily Practice of Painting, when I was a student. You know, Cecily Brown, I mean, she's been a sort of companion, I would say, at a distance, because we're exactly the same generation, you know, we're sort of two women making paintings in a very sort of male tradition using, you know, walking in that field, if you like, um, with confidence. 
And so I've always, I'm always interested to see what she's doing. She comes to my shows. It's a sort of mutual support system, actually. It's interesting that the, the, the artists you talk about, because all of them, it seems to me, have a, a unswerving, or perhaps it's swerving, but but a sort of commitment, a kind of gravitas about making serious and 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 important art. And I, you know, that isn't conceited. It's just that they want to make an impact. And it strikes me that's the same with you. You want, you, you know, right from the start, you've made big work, work on a grand scale, because you wanted to say something, you know, that, that had an impact, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I like epic poetry. I like, I mean, I like striving for something that's difficult. You know, like sometimes I'm in the midst of doing something that's so difficult. And I think, what, you know, why am I doing this? When, you know, I see peers of mine making, you know, a series of 25 works very easily, you know, and I'm trying this one painting to get so much tension within this one piece. But um, I think my, my uncle taught me when I was very young, if you're going to have heroes, make them very good. And so I've I've always held that very, you know, close to me that, you may not reach that level, but you're going to get further up a mountain if you have this, you know, that you look to people that are amazing. So, you know, I love old literature, ancient literature like Homer or, um, I don't know, the Epic of Gilgamesh, that kind of epic story which has a whole range of human nature within it and the acceptance of the good and the bad. And and, and I, I, I want to make work like that. I want to make work that... that takes on those grand themes, the grand themes of art. I, I don't really see the point otherwise. I, I saw something that you uh, said in, in an interview once about how Cindy Sherman had really affected your work and how you'd seen through her work a different way of approaching your own. Yeah, I mean, she was... A lot of the, the artists that helped me as a woman, I would say, because I, I, I sort of had this conflict. At the time, it was a conflict, Um between painting and liking sort of traditional old master painting and being a feminist and being a woman in the world, you know, in the late 20th century. And she opened a door for me to say, it's okay to have all these different myths of femininity. And I was looking for the singular thing. And so she just became a, um, I mean, not just Cindy Shum, there was a whole range of other artists, female artists that were sort of feminist artists, if you like, or taken up by feminist theorists. But none of them were painters. So that became, they, they just gave me a key, these artists, a lot of like sculptors, installation artists, um, of how to deal with femininity. And then I was able to put that conflict into painting. And so then I was off. So by the time I'd done my degree show, I definitely felt I had, I had my language. And do you have reproductions of all these people that we've talked about on your studio wall? Well, not only on the wall, they're mostly on the floor. To be honest. <laughs> I mean, when you uh, sent me that question, I thought, well, you know, what don't I have, really? I mean, I, I have so much stuff. I, I love working with a lot of imagery around me. And I started thinking about that and I was sort of going around thinking, OK, I've got this person. And, um, and half of what I've got are unknown artists because I love ancient sculpture. Um, I mean, one of my famous... Fa- one of my favourite sculptures is uh, the Venus of Holy Fells. I don't know if you know those. It was only found in 2008. It's this very tiny, they think it was used as a pendant. Of a, it was, it's like a de Kooning's Woman 1 in a sculpture, basically. And, you know, nobody knows who made any of these incredible sculptures. So I like the dislocation of the author. So we don't know who it was. We don't know the gender of that person either. So I can sort of speculate that there's a sort of women's history in art too. I, I mean, I like ancient cave paintings. 
you know, it can be it can be photographs I've taken of graffiti. I mean, anyone who travels with me gets totally bored at me slowing down photographing graffiti. I photograph paint on floors, stains. You know, it's it's a it's a bit of a job traveling with me because I because especially graffiti in a foreign language because there's no protest. It's just mark making and colors, and because it's collective, you have uh, color uh, changes that you wouldn't expect. So they're not made by choice by a singular artist. They're, and so you start to see different colours that are actually un, unexpected. And that, that's been very helpful. This episode of A Brush With is sponsored by Cork Street Galleries. Cork Street lies at the centre of the highest concentration of galleries in London and remains the spiritual and cultural home of the global art world, where the careers of some of the greatest artists of our time were launched. Cork Street Galleries is an initiative by the Pollen Estate. To find out more about the original home of the art world, go to corkstreetgalleries.com. Which museum or gallery do you visit most frequently? I mean, the National Gallery, when I come to London, I, or the Royal Academy. I mean, I tend to go to shows and then I go and see specific work. So if I go to the National Gallery, I go and see you know, Hendriki or uh, I think it's Hendriki, isn't yeah. it? The woman holding her dress up by Rembrandt. And I'll go and see the Degas of the woman on the chair with the, the red and white armchair. I like that painting a lot. You know, I go and see specific things for what I need at a particular time. And then obviously I go and see actual shows that might be at Tate. I mean, I, I really love the Met. When I go to um, New York, I stay uptown so I can be near the Met. And I like the paintings in MoMA. So I, I sort of have a bit of an obsession with Demoiselle d'Avignon. So that's, that's when I walk in my studio, the reproduction's right in front of me. So it sort of gets me going in the morning. So, you know, the bravery of it, the way he reorganised the world, I, I think that that's, that's kind of keeps me on track. So I like to visit that painting. I like to visit Easter Monday. They, they kind of push you in the right direction, those paintings. As you say, you lived in Palermo for a time and you've, and you've lived in New York for a bit. And do you sort of adopt those spaces local to you as the sort of that becomes the resource, if you like, the physical resource? So you've got all the reproductions in the studio and then wherever you are in the world, you need a kind of physical space. You can go and look at the real stuff, as it were. I think that my inner voice has never really changed. You know, my work, wherever I've worked, I haven't really, you know, the, the major thrust of my work stayed pretty much the same. And you know, I'd, I'd work in a cupboard, I'd work anywhere, to be honest. You know, if I'm in a hotel room, I start doing drawings on the floor. I, I, you know, I can adapt and work quite easily. Um, and often I've noticed that I don't really understand what I'm doing in a space in a different country until I leave. So the hybridity of Palermo became very important the moment I came back to Oxford. So and I was in a studio in Oxford and it all suddenly made sense. So when I was in Palermo, I was interested in the market. I had a, a, an amazing medieval meat market and food market outside of this, my studio window that was noisy. So the moment I opened these big shutters, it was just chaos. And so I liked the juxtaposition of that and the, the rhythm of the day where they cleaned the rubbish and I'd hear the rubbish trucks kind of whining at night and they'd wash away the sort of, you know, the dirt of the day. And then the next day was a whole new... Um, fresh vegetables, new season. And it, it, that was the rhythm of painting. So that helps me a lot in my daily rhythm. I mean, the immediate vicinity of my studio is very important because I don't, you know, that's, that's where I'm at. That's where I am. So I just need somewhere to go and have a coffee, um, you know, maybe pick up lunch. I need a, a DIY shop near me to buy turpentine. And, and those, 
very simple things are enough for me. You know, have some in human interaction and uh, and I, I can get on with my work. I mean, in Oxford, I'm lucky that I've got two studios. Well, I've actually got three now because I've converted my house since lockdown to, and I've got a truck. So I use the back of my truck as a studio too. So I've, but I've got a drawing studio and a painting studio. So, um, and I tend to work in one more in the winter and one more in the summer. So I've learned a sort of rhythm about that. I, I'm at the point now, my, I've got my children sort of growing up a bit where I'd like to put it all back under one situation because I love to live and work in one space. And actually working at home in this lockdown, I've really enjoyed like working in this room and then just walking upstairs to bed and then, you know, having some lunch, going back to, you know, like a rhythm that's much tighter rather than go to the studio on the bike, come back. Yeah, so I, I think that that would be my next step, I think, to, to find a bigger space where I can have a sort of storage, painting and drawing studio, this, this whole sort of unit in one place. Which cultural experience changed the way you see the world? Okay, so mine's quite an intimate situation where I was uh, given the access to de Kooning's studio a couple of years after he died. And it was uh, a good Friday and my gallery dealer, I was at my gallery dealer's house in the Hamptons and he had set up for me to be able to go over to Lisa de Kooning's house, which was de Kooning's house, and go and spend the day in the studio. So she just gave me the keys and it was... I, I probably learned more in that single day than I ever learned going to art school. I learned uh, the types of palettes. I mean, I, it was a shortcut of uh, experience and development because I was able to see all the technical things that he did. The, the types of brushes he used, the long handled brushes, just all the technical side of painting was all there for me to witness because it, it literally it was brushes down and left. So and he had lots of work around and, I you know, I saw... It's had such a huge impact on my work, you know, like mixing paint in bowls, uh, colour, the, the way he mixed his colours, the types of brushes he used. I used long glass palettes, one each side of me in the same way that he did. Uh, he had this sort of painting trough. I mean, I left that space that day almost feeling like I was picking up his brushes and carrying on. It was such a romantic experience. And I can't say that it, it changed my work uh, in terms it made me look differently at the world necessarily, but it was a hugely important day for me. And it, it's lasted all my life. You know, I think about that day quite, quite frequently. That's fascinating. I mean, it, I'm, I'm really intrigued by the influence of abstraction on your work because you've spoken about this kind of insistent need to make figurative imagery, but also an insistent need to make abstract marks. And that that obviously is a sort of tension in the work. And I love the way that sometimes you push in one direction more than another. And it seems to me that that's definitely happened more in maybe the last decade or so. Yeah, I mean, I think partly, I mean, I had a a belief that it was going to take a long time to get very good. Right? I still think that. <laughs> but um, I, I know I've got a certain dexterity now. I've got a certain knowledge of how to use colours. Uh, there was a few things that happened Um I had that de Kooning, there was a de Kooning studio visit and then I started to separate my physical process of working and that was from looking at abstract painting. So when you see de Kooning mixed up his colours in bowls and then the actual painting was on the canvas where the, he would mix the tones, that was visually very, very exciting. But I had the problem of trying to make that into a figurative painting and the tension of that. And so it ha- when you make a figurative painting that has a certain level of realism, or illusionistic space, the paint has to do a job. It has to do a scientific job, if you like, of making space. So I had, you know, it's still a difficulty I've got of saying, you know, how good is the paint 
and how good is the structure of what I'm trying to build. And I, I, you know, sometimes I go, why don't you just make abstract paintings? It would be, you know, such a joyful thing to do. Um, but I, I feel like I'd be giving up the game. You know, this, 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 um, you know, it's, maybe it's just being so European in me that I, I feel like there's something in there. You know, like I feel such relationship to people like Michelangelo. When I see those sculptures that he he's made in, where you really see the sort of unfinished, the abstraction areas of my paintings, I, sometimes I start very, very abstract and then it's like laying down a problem or laying down a nature is a better way to put it, so that there's a nature within this painting already. And I have to build out of that nature, another nature. So you reorganise nature, if you like. And I find that very thrilling in the in the process of working, that you can have something that doesn't make sense, make sense and still be abstract. So the tension between the two, which I thought it, it was almost like, a, am I decorating a figurative image with the abstraction? But now I feel it's very, very intrinsic. And it's actually the, the powerful element I have in my work is the fight. It's actually like a fight. So, um, and, and, and I will deliberately destroy in order to rebuild. And if you do that with confidence, which you only get after years of working, then you have access to something to do with the nature itself. And that's, I think that's what Picasso talks about when he's destroying and then rebuilding. And the reason he could do it was because he could draw so well or, you know, the, the years and years of working. So I knew I had a sort of investment in my time by doing it. And you can see it when you look at great artists of the past, the investment in that time. I mean, Titian was able to make the nymph and the shepherd because of every other painting he'd made before. So and I think looking at older art has helped me see that journey. If I'd only been looking at Warhol, I would never have seen that journey, if you know what I mean. Absolutely. Let's talk about literature. Which books or writers do you return to? OK, so I had a sort of look at the pile next to my bed. <laughs> and uh, I would say... I've got two types of books primarily. One are art books, obviously, because I'm, you know, I sit with piles of art books looking through like, you know, okay, I'll look at Twombly's Battle of Lepanto this evening. You know, I look at that as I'm sitting in bed, you know, what, you know, this is, you know, I get confidence when I look at Twombly. I sort of think, wow, you've just got to go there. You know, it's so beautiful, that pink and yellow. and um, Or I then have poetry. So poetry is my sort of go-to book you know sometimes it, through this lockdown I've got this uh, wonderful kind of secret garden in my house I sit at a table and I just read lines of poetry and then I go back to work and it's I find reading novels are, are quite difficult I just don't have the I don't have the time to, to go through that journey and the shape and if it lasts too long the novel I just lose my thread so I found that poetry small lines of poetry actually do such a great job for me. I can hold a line of poetry for five years and just think about it. I mean, I had this line of by Rilke in uh, his book, The Book of Images, and it was, uh, and one sees to the bottom of time. And I have that all written in all my studios. I have it in, the, like, I open any sketchbook, it seems to be there. I write it again and again. And, and I, it's such a, a visual route for me. So I can actually, you know, lock onto something. Or T.S. Eliot. I mean, somebody said to me, who travels with me a lot, she said, you always travel with a copy of T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland. And I hadn't thought about it, but I find that poem, because it's, it, I think I relate to it so much because it's ancient and modern combined together. And there's very ambiguous relationships between the ancient world that you only understand after you start reading a lot more myths. So I suppose 
you know, like poetry, Rilke, I've got um, Goethe's Faust. I always have a copy of the Iliad and the Odyssey. I mean, since I've had children, I've really wanted them to have a historical sense which I think has really been important to me. So I, so it's, it's reinvigorated my need to read those texts aloud to my kids. So like the Epic of Gilgamesh, you know, not necessarily the actual words, but often abridged versions or um, things like that. Plutarch's on the mysteries of Isis and Osiris, the utterances of the goddess Isis. Artist's letters. Uh, Ovid's metamorphosis, I would say that's a... I often dig into that. Um, George Steiner. I'm a huge George Steiner fan. I've read uh, most of his books. Aeschylus, anything to do with the goddess Ishtar. I mean, I don't have... Okay, this is my this is my favourite book. I just have uh, piles of books. I have a whole range of poetry. I mean, I went to Russia last year, so I've got a, a whole range of different books of Russian poets, like Anna Akhmatova. I've become interested in her poem, The Requiem. You know, my dealer's always recommending, because he reads a lot, and he's always recommending wonderful books, and I get them, and I just hardly ever read them. <laughs> um, but it is intriguing, that that novels versus poetry, in terms of the relationship to painting, because, of course, in, in, in a way, the condition of poetry, you could argue, is much closer to the condition of painting, where you might say that novels and films are more related. Or, But it it does seem to me that there's more of a correspondence between poetry and painting than perhaps than, than the novel, perhaps. I think because it's the condensing, like the, the the kind of search for an essence, and so in painting you're trying to be as precise as possible and and find something fundamental or the essence of something, which is exactly the same objective as poetry, really, isn't yeah, it? Exactly. So that's why I, I it's like a shock of recognition is the way I think of it. So when I read a line in poetry, I feel like I've read that line all my life, but I've never read it before. And it's the same that I, if I do a drawing and I, I have multiple layers on top of the drawing, I work and work until I find some sort of recognition. Yet I've never drawn those set of figures before in that particular way. So it's that. It's, it's, um, I mean, I have loads of things written down, like truths greater than knowledge. I mean, you know, it sounds deeply pretentious, but there is something in that, which is, is what poetry and painting can hold. So, so I feel a real relationship with poetry. The older I've got, the more interested in poetry, especially epic poetry. I like that very, from the ancient world. I love the mystery of that. And they also deal with very deep themes. You know, this is, it's, it's not exactly a um, positive PC environment in the, in the Iliad, you know. <laughs> Um, I was intrigued by you mentioning Eliot because it seems to me that there's been increasing fragmentary quality to your work in recent years. Yeah. And I wondered if, you know, would, would reading The Wasteland help with that? I mean, literally, you know, thinking about how he had done it in terms of poetry and then bringing that into your own environment, or is it not as sort of direct as that? Yeah, I mean, and Sappho's fragments, Oxyrhynchus, you know, fragments of papyri, the, the, you know, the notion of that. I live in Oxford, so, you know, in the Museum of Archaeology and um, vi I visit a lot of archaeological sites and seeing ruins and pieces of things and learning about cuneiform tablets of Epic of Gilgamesh is not one piece. It's made up of fragments and, that have been rearranged to make some kind of narrative. So I think that that's... Um, and I think that's the way memory works too. You know, that we, we have sort of fragmentary memory. So... Um, and, and, and living in Palermo with that level of hybridity, you know, with, because they've been, pretty much been invaded by everyone. So they, and everyone's left their mark and that those marks and scars and um, they actually make the city or make the culture. Um, and so that became, a, I, I tend to look at things and take the model of something. So for instance, 
I've been looking at the Epic of Gilgamesh and Mesopotamian and Sumerian poetry uses repetition a lot. And so I've started using repetition a lot of my work and, ha- and what that does from using repetition. And so music, musical sounds are the same sort of thing, like how music is composed became very important for me, for the way to construct a painting. I mean, I, I do it with everything. Like if I, when I saw, uh, went to see a plastic surgeon work, I started to think about the anatomy of a painting, not just the anatomy of a body. And so those things act as models that I can then put into painting. I mean, I, I, I definitely am not a trendy artist in that when I went to art school, people would say, you need to use the medium that suits the idea. And that's a complete opposite of the way that I am as an artist. I, I think in paint. I mean, literally everything comes through a channel which I can grind up into paint. That's the way my work is. You know, it's my language. You mentioned music there. What music or other audio do you listen to while you're painting? But the podcast, I'm a real fan of uh, In Our Time on Radio 4. I love it too. I find that just, uh, oh, I mean, I sort of get my kids hooked on it now. I mean, they're much more into TED Talks and um, Vox. My son watches Vox a lot. But I just think In Our Time is just a phenomenal body of work. And you can dip into anything and it's interesting. The trouble is, is that I can't really do that when I'm painting because I have to focus so much. So if I, if, you know, I have to stop to listen to it and then, you know, I'm not working. So I'm pretty ruthless with music. I use music as a way to, to get in the right mood for what I want or um, to just be, I, I mean, I, I listen to things on repeat. So it's very annoying if, 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 you know, if anybody were in my studio, they would just be going completely crazy because I can listen to one single piece of music for the whole duration of an artwork or even for a show. So Schubert's Impromptu, Opus 90, D899, is seven minutes long. And I listen to that on repeat for the whole of a piece of work called In the Voice of the Shuttle. I know that work, that big drawing you showed at the Royal Academy. Yeah, exactly. And... I've never really listened to the piece since. Every time I listen to it, I think of the moment I was working. Radiohead's In Rainbows, I listened to on repeat when I was making mother and child drawings, which is, you know, may may not think that that goes together, but actually the repetitions of sounds and the layerings was a good companion for me at that time. And and the kind of urgency, there was an urgency in the music that I liked. I I remember I used to listen to Philip Glass a lot um, when I was mixing colours. And so I use music. I, mean, I, I feel I'm actually not very kind to music because I, I don't give it its credit that it deserves. And, um, you know, recently I've been listening to Goldberg Variations, Bark. Um, I can listen to hip hop. I like listening to hip hop at night for some reason. I mean, I know the whole of Jay-Z's catalogue. I mean, it's very un PC to uh, the, the lyrics, but there's a, there's a realism in what he says that I really lock into. And I like the, I like the rhythm of it at night. So it, it, it totally depends what I'm doing. I, I tend in the daytime not to listen to music because I have to concentrate so much. And at night when I'm feeling a little bit kind of looser, make more mistakes or not mistakes, but I take more risks. Uh, I like to have music around. It, it, it just depends. I can listen to like Days of Beethoven, Nirvana. I can listen to my son makes me um, Spotify you know, like music collections. So I never know what I'm going to get. Um, but if I start to think about the music... I don't like it. So the music has to stay somewhere slightly away from me 
psychologically. So it's just there, but it's just there to serve a sort of rhythm, if you know what I mean, a background rhythm. So that's why I say when I say I'm not kind to music, I think music sort of deserves much more than the way I treat it. One aspect relating to music is that two of your works, one a triptych and one a portrait, have appeared on the covers of two different Manic Street Preachers albums. So there was the Holy Bible from 1994 and the more recent Journal for Plague Lovers. It occurred to me that for many people looking at those images, the the music acts as a kind of soundtrack. And I wondered how it felt for you to be so associated with particular types of music, your, your work to em- embody that music in some way. Yeah, I, di- I didn't really... I mean, I knew the band when I first did it, but it was actually talking to Richie on the telephone and he, and he faxed me the lyrics. Mm. And so when he faxed me... You know, those old sort of thermal fax machines? Yeah. I was um, in Glasgow and they started coming out of my fax machine and so I was reading them upside down and it was a song called Four Stone, Eleven Pounds about anorexia and his weight. And they were so profound and the, the, the lyrics of that whole album are just amazing that... Um, that's what prompted me to do it, actually. I mean, I did think, should I be an album cover? You know, is that, is that, you know, I didn't really have a desire to be an album cover. I was a bit more of a snob at that time. And so, um, but, you know, who, I wasn't to know that this incredible story of, you know, the disappearance of this guy. And then, um, and then it was a real pleasure to reunite with them for the next album. So I immediately said, yes, I thought it was a sort of beautiful shape to the to the work and actually Nicky Wire sent me a text message the other day as he saw my new painting online and so we've kept a a relationship going which is really lovely and there was a connection again with Richie on that second the journal for plague lovers that was was reusing Richie's old lyrics wasn't it yeah yeah that's why I I think I wouldn't have done it had it not been this very special folder that was you know found lyrics but I, I never speak about my work anywhere in the world without somebody coming up to me with that album for me to sign the album. I mean, that, that album, especially the first album, has reached so many people and obviously touches so many sort of teenagers in a particular period in their life. Um, so it's always, it's always a pleasure to see people who have been, you know, who, who are um, influenced by that, that group of songs and my work on the cover. I think, yeah, I'm really pleased that I did that. I wanted to ask you about other media. Which other media influence your work? Well, I would say sculpture. I mean... Um, I look at sculpture, there's, you know, I have endless reproductions of sculpture, Michelangelo's sculptures, Picasso's. I flew to New York to see Picasso's sculpture show at MoMA, ancient sculpture. Then I would say film. Film's very influential. I prob- probably would have been a filmmaker had I not been a painter, I would say. I like documentaries. I watch a lot of documentaries. I was watching this one, Trespassing on Bergman, the other night, and The Eyes of Orson Welles, because my son's got an obsession with Orson Welles, so we were watching that. Um, I-, I find documentaries of artists very inspiring to you know it's a it keeps me in the game you know if I'm if you know what I mean you know it keeps me in the zone I'm having I'm relaxing from work but I stay in this zone and feel you know if I watch a Matisse documentary I literally run back to my studio so I feel I, I love watching artists at work or um hearing them speak about their work and it could be a filmmaker or it could be a, a painter it could be a sculptor it doesn't matter really and what and I, I, one thing I'm really intrigued by is your you say you you have a large collection of war photographs that you draw on quite often. And obviously, there was one particular example recently where you were looking at war photographs in connection with your own uh, images of the Pieta. Can you say something about how that works? I mean, is it is it you know do you almost transcribe those images, or is it sort of a much more sort of um, uh, an impressionistic approach? Well, I mean, I've collected. Pieters for years and years. I would say 
from Glasgow. You know, just, you know, I've always ripped things out of newspapers and then newspapers became the internet. Um, you know, there was a big transition when the internet started and suddenly, you know, from even for medical photography that was very difficult to uh, research and get hold of because the medical books were so expensive uh, or war photography um, was just in newspapers. So then you had to, you know, I didn't have a scanner, so you'd have to go to a shop to get them photocopied and they were absolutely hopeless to work from. Now with the internet, it's just incredible. The the resource, the visual resource is endless, actually. And, um, and so I just print things off, look at them, look at them in relationship to... Um, ancient art if you like and and you know certain compositions I see on the floor and they're lying on the floor uh, and then I started to realize that there there was a lot of men carrying children out of bombings out of uh, you know a bombing in Israel or um, you know a building that's collapsed or whatever it was in Iraq or something then and I thought well, you don't very often see men carrying babies and so that became a um a whole body of work. I looked back through my images and, you know, more than, easily more than half were men holding babies. So that became an interesting idea to actually make a Pieta based on that idea. So I'm continuing that in my uh, work for Florence. Fascinating. I want to get you talked a bit about your studio life already, but I'm, I'm intrigued by certain sort of rituals and things like, do you have a, do you have a particular paint colour that you turn to when you reach an impasse in your work? You can't sort of say, oh, God, this is not working. I'll go and get some yellow because it doesn't really work like that. But I do think I have phases of colours and I do I use pure colour because like, I have, you know, I have my key colours. I mix all my colours off and and so they stay sort of the same, which is a list of, I don't know, it's maybe 16 colours of something like that. I never really, you know, uh, count them. And then I have colours that I, I use certain colours to sort of boost um, give a life force to the colours. So say, for example, I'm painting uh, lips and in the photograph, I'm really, I really study the photograph, the makeup of the photograph. So say there's a sort of uh, cerulean blue and a yellow, it looks slightly greenish. I might get cerulean blue and lemon yellow and pure and rub that underneath the lips. You know, so I have core colours that I use for mixing and then I have certain colours which I go in phases really. So I use lemon yellow a lot as a pure colour and cerulean blue but I use this other colour called thigh cyanide blue and titanium white and it used to come with zinc white but that's that's definitely a go-to colour when I want to give it a boost to something because it, it's such an electric blue that it um, it has a kind of life force. So I also use his cadmium red light a lot which is beyond nature, really. It's, it's so electric. Um, I've, I've just discovered another colour that he has called cobalt violet, um, which when you mix it with something else, it doesn't work. But in its pure form, it's just incredible. Um, olive green I use on the edges of eyes. Uh, Van Dyke brown is the colour of mud, which I totally love. Uh, raw umber. You know, I, I kind of... I have phases where colours rise up and I'm using them a lot. And then um, they sort of slip away and I think, oh, I haven't used olive green for a long time. I, I have this collection of colours that can be used in their true form that I don't mix. I might mix them with a general tone and they boost and give a life force to what I'm doing. And what about, about you know, when you, I'm, I'm intrigued by this, this fact that you sometimes just begin 
a painting by just making abstract marks on 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 the surface, just needing to get something down and it not being tethered. Yeah, so I put the, I, I put that on the floor, for example. So when I'm making paintings, if it's a, say it's a big project painting that I've been working on for a while, you know, in terms of the idea and everything, um, I mix up my colours in pots. I don't mix them as I go. So I get photographs. And I make a map and I literally very carefully mix up the tones across it. Say it's like a right cheek to a, a chin to a colour on the neck. I'll mix a general tone that will do that job. So if you just laid it down, it would do the job of making that space. OK, so that that I make in pots. And through lockdown, I've actually been working outside, which has got me a whole other level of uh, colour density. Then I look at the photograph and think of the possibilities that I could move those colours because within it, if you change on Photoshop, for example, and you swing it where the hue gets stronger, the colours get really vibrant. In a photograph, it looks absolutely terrible. But if you mix that in paint in its raw state and run them together, they have a kind of electricity. Um, so I use all these techniques of photography as possibilities for mixing colours, uh, which is like, uh, it's, it's actually very similar to late Degas pastels, the way that he used to just lay down raw colours to make the tone. And the transition that I've made into pastels has really helped me in my paintings because recently I've made a painting using, um, there's a shop in Paris called Maison du Pastel and they used to make Degas pastels. And when I was last there, I bought this set of pastels based on Monet's late water lily paintings. And so I've been making these heads using this set and the colours are, you know, incredibly electric, not related to any photograph. And I've actually been working with black and white photographs of heads. But because you can't make the exact tone in the pastel, you have to make it out of the raw pastels together by lining them up. And so it, it's opened the door to me to different ways to mix colours. So now I actually mix the pastels as paint and then start working like that. So it forces my hand to do different ways of doing it. And, and oil bars too. Oil bars have helped me a lot recently. Are there any daily rituals in your working life? I've had different ones over the years. I mean, I used to be quite sentimental and only start big paintings on Saturdays for some reason, which is really crazy, right? <laughs> so I don't know where that started, but I used to want to always make it on Saturday. And if, I, if I was ready on Monday, it was a real bummer because I thought I'm going to waste that whole week if I have to wait till Saturday. So, and now I start so many paintings and do so many things, I've just that's gone out of the window. Uh, I had a funny ritual for a few years where I would, I would basically rate my day so I'd give myself a score for how well I painted that day. <laughs> That's gone. Um, I'm very much, uh, I like to work with a clean palette. So I work with two glass palettes that are about three metres long, two and a half metres, three metres long and about a metre wide. And I have one of those each side of me. And I like those to be spotless. My palette used to look like chicken shit. And I used to think, why do my paintings look like chicken shit? And then I realised my palette looked like chicken shit. So there we are. So I started from my de Kooning studio visit. Um, and seeing what he did, I, I decided, and then I read a lot about Soutine, how it was very particular about his brushes, because I wanted to have that incredible play of colours on the canvas. But I realised, actually, it's not about this sort of bohemian, dirty environment. It's actually, you need a clean environment, so the action happens on the canvas. So I have quite clean brushes, um, a whole selection of them, and a very clean palette. That would, And I have a coffee. I usually start my day with a coffee on the palette. So that's, 
Um, I mean, I've got each painting has a clipboard. That's a funny one. So <laughs> because I... What, is, what does that mean? <laughs> well, so say, I, you know, because if I'm doing a big show and I've got a whole body of work, say I've got 20 works on the go, I forget what I'm doing on each piece when I'm working on them all at the same time. And sequencing is very important. So I make a lot of stencils and things at the moment. So the sequencing of the way I put the paint down in order to keep the painting as open as possible for as long as possible becomes very important. So, you know, because I like to paint thick, if I'm doing a lot of moving around of the image, you have to keep the paint quite thin early on. So the sequencing, I work that out. And so that goes onto the clipboard. So I know when I look at it and think, well, where was I? You know, probably because I just forget. So I write notes or you know, make the paint rain. Like I'll write things like that. Make it look like it's, you know, like the paint is raining. Draw through the rain. I'll write notes on it like that. And then the other thing I do is I write reports on my painting when I finish them. So it's not on the painting itself. It's on how I made that work. So as a sort of improvement guide, you know, like because sometimes during the painting, I can take a different direction and I look at, because I photograph all the time on my iPad and I look later on, like six months later, I'll say, shit, it was so much better at this point. Why didn't I, why didn't I go down there? What, what made me go that way? So that started me writing notes about the painting of saying, you know, maybe when you get to that stage again, stop and work on something else and then work out how to make that move, that painting. So that's, um, that's when I say I write a report. It's not, it's not um, teacher-like. It's just a, it's like a set of notes, really so that I remember to take a different direction or be braver or something like that. Because I just forget. I literally get onto something else and my mind goes somewhere else, so I forget. That's so fascinating. Um, this is going to be a hard one, I think. If you could live with one work of art, what would it be? Oh, God, that's such a bitch of a question, isn't it? <laughs> so I had a list. Uh, if it was right now, I'd just take the Florence Pieta. I'd put that right in the middle of my studio because I'm you know, making drawings related to that and whole bodies of work around it. Um, I mean, I had Velasquez, Pope Innocent X and Las Meninas. I'd probably choose Las Meninas, to be honest, because I, there's so much in it about painting. And would you want Velasquez's Pope staring at you every day? Yes, I would love that. You know, they're, <laughs> what, they're the best shit in art history. Um, Titian's The Nymph and the Shepherd or The Flaying of Marcius, because you never get to see The Flaying of Marcius. Uh, Picasso's Guernica. I mean, you know, you look at it and you say, but I'd feel so guilty having that in my studio to myself. De Kooning's Woman One makes you brave. Um, and then a more contemporary thing, I think, is The Battle of Lepanto by Twombly. I think that, that I saw that going on the stretcher. And so I saw the whole movement of that going up onto the wall and the whole sequencing of it. And, uh, and I was in the gallery when that happened. So I'm very attached to that group of works. I mean, it was like watching magic. It was epic in my lifetime to see that sort of painting of that huge subject of a history painting like that so I'm very attached to those group of works so you know maybe I'd go and live in the Brandhorst <laughs> collection where they are um but I, su- I suppose it, if I had to have one it's probably Las Meninas so you know I, then I just feel guilty I didn't have a Rembrandt self-portrait I mean it's so difficult isn't it you know it's uh but probably Las Meninas because it would last all my life I'd, I'd work out it's a treaty on painting isn't it you know, it's, it's a figurative treaty too. So, and I, I, if ever I'm in doubt, I usually go to Velasquez because he's just such a superb painter. You know, he's a superb painter of flesh, of uh, nostrils. I mean, the, the, the nuts and bolts of it, he's so good at. He is, he is so great. So finally, what is art for? Well, 
you know, it's very basic for me. It's artists for life, artists for survival. You know, it's the shock of recognition that you feel a sense of belonging, but it's um, you recognise yourself in the world. I mean, it, I, I, re- I really believe it's for survival, you know, that, that you need it. It's intrinsic to being human, that we have to either make marks or, you know, it's like singing, making music. It's, it's fundamental to being a human being. I, I see it as, yeah, you know, I, I can't imagine doing anything else. You know, when I'm in the in the process of painting, I feel very in touch with us, with myself, you know, in, in a sense that, and, and nothing else I've ever done in my life does. That, the bringing into being, you know, it's, it's a magical process. When you make marks and you start from nothing and you make a certain series of marks in a certain way, you make something that has never existed in the world before. And those marks have never been made in that sequencing before. And every single human that's ever lived in history has never done that. It's a very magical feeling. And that's the best way that I can explain why I like being an artist. Well, Jenny, thank you so much. Thank you. Jenny Savile's project at various sites across the city of Florence in Italy opens in 2021. And that's it for this episode. Please subscribe to A Brush With and do give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts if you've enjoyed it. You can find us on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. And just a reminder that you can listen to the full back catalogue of our other podcast at the Art Newspaper, The Week in Art, wherever you get your podcasts. More than 100 episodes looking at the art world in depth from museums to heritage and the market, many of them featuring interviews with artists from Mark Bradford and Ai Weiwei to Rachel Whiteread. Do subscribe to The Week in Art to be notified about new episodes. Production, editing and sound design on A Brush With are by David Clack and the producers of the Art Newspaper podcast are Julie Mihauska and Amy Dawson. Thanks to Henrietta Bentall and Daniela Hathaway. Huge thanks to Jenny Savile and do join us for the next episode, A Brush With, Chantelle Joffe. See you then. This episode of A Brush With is sponsored by Cork Street Galleries. To find out more about the original home of the art world, go to corkstreetgalleries.com.